Peter's second epistle is written to warn us of the dangers of antinomianism and apostasy. The chief defense against these dangers is growing in godliness. Now, previously, Peter revealed that God granted us four provisions for a life of godliness. He's provided us with faith, grace and peace, everything pertaining to life and godliness, and precious and magnificent promises. Now he explains the process and purpose of growing in godliness. You know, when we were first saved, we wanted to grow in godliness. But sadly, that eagerness sometimes wanes over time. All too soon, we settle into the doldrums of complacency and even apathy. And little do we realize that at that moment, we are easy prey for false teachers. Again, growth in godliness will stem the onslaught of complacency and apathy and guard us against false teachers. However, we must note that growth does not happen without determination and discipline. So let's turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, and let's see what Peter has to say about growing in godliness. First of all, beginning with verses 5 through 7, we're going to look at the process of growing in godliness. The process of growing in godliness. And then we're going to come down to verses 8 through 11, and we're going to look at the purpose for growing in godliness. The purpose for growing in godliness. Beginning with verse 5, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Notice Peter begins by saying, for this very reason, it points back to what he said in verse 4. Namely, that we are partakers of the divine nature. Now, the term partaker there, koinonos, indicates that we share in Christ's divine nature. That part of Christ's divine nature that we share in is his glory and excellence, that is, Christ's moral virtues. Anticipating questions about what those moral virtues look like, Peter supplies a chain of seven virtues that we must pursue moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Now, it must be underscored that there are more than seven virtues to pursue. Peter's choice of these seven virtues uh, is because they are the opposite of the evil characteristics demonstrated by the antinomian Gnostics. Consider 2 Peter 2, 2, 10, 14, and 18. Many follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Having eyes full of adultery, they never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. So in providing these seven virtues, Peter is using a logical argument commonly known in the epistles as a sorites, sorites. 
According to the Pocket Dictionary for the Study of New Testament Greek, a serites is a sequence of propositions in which one established predicate becomes the subject of the next proposition. These propositions are linked together in a step-by-step chain that culminates in the climax of the argument. Romans 5, 3-5 provides an example of a serites. All who suffer persevere. All who persevere develop character. All who develop character have hope. All who have hope will not be disappointed. All who are not disappointed can rejoice. Therefore, all who suffer can rejoice. J.D. Charles provides a paraphrase of Peter's list, which is worth considering. He states, quote, Faith is the root of all moral virtue, and such virtue is linked with what we do with our knowledge of God. If we use this knowledge well, we will exercise self-control. Such self-control will give us ability to endure difficulties. Endurance will then lead to godliness in our relationships, and those relationships will be governed by brotherly affection and Christian love. Regarding these virtues, believers are to be applying all diligence in their implementation. The word applying means to bring something into operation. Diligence means that we implement these virtues with excitement, with eagerness, and with earnestness. And while Christ has provided us with everything pertaining to life and godliness and precious and magnificent promises, we cannot be passive. We must put our excitement, our eagerness, and our earnestness into operation. As Thomas Schreiner states, quote, a godly character does not emerge from passivity or lassitude. See, this false notion of, well, just let go and let God must be rejected. While God is working powerfully in us, we must make every effort to grow in godliness. This is what Paul meant when he said in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, God provides the resources for godliness, but we are responsible for our growth in godliness. Now, at the foundation of this chain of virtues is faith. Faith is not one of the virtues, as Peter does not say to supply it like the other virtues. This faith is biblical doctrine, based on the fact that in the Greek text, Faith is preceded by the definite article te. What this indicates is that all of these virtues find their source in sound biblical doctrine. That is, biblical doctrine is foundational to the Christian life and informs us how to live. Now, we are to be supplying these seven moral virtues to our doctrinal foundation. The verb supply means to provide something in addition to what already exists, to add. Though the verb's only used in verse 5, it provides the action for each of the following virtues. Now, the word supply, the Greek term behind it, epikoregeo, translated again as supply, is derived from the term karegos, which refers to a choir director who supplies his choir at his own expense. And such directors were known for their lavish generosity in supporting the arts. They did not want people to think that they were stingy or cheap. 
Thus, believers, you and I, are to generously and lavishly add these virtues to our doctrinal foundation. To begin, number one, we must add moral excellence or moral virtue to our foundation of biblical doctrine. The Greek term for moral excellence, arete, translated here, is only used four times in the New Testament, three of which by Peter, 1 Peter 4, 9, 2 Peter 1, 3, and 5. Peter used this term in verse 3 to refer to the moral virtues of Christ. By employing this term here in verse 5, Peter conveys the idea that we are to display the same moral virtues of, as Christ. That is, we are to embrace and practice the same moral traits that Jesus displayed. And displaying Christ-like virtues is known as Christ-likeness. So, ask yourself, am I displaying Christ morality? Am I displaying Christ's morality? Second, we must add knowledge, gnosis, to our moral excellence. Now, Peter used the cognate term epinosis in 2 Peter 1.2, which refers to understanding the gospel so clearly and distinctly that it informs and influences one's life resulting in conversion. The use of gnosis here in verse 5 relates to learning and reasoning the truths of Scripture in a manner which influences and informs our ethics. See, when God declared, be holy as I am holy, he established a code of ethics for humanity to live by. More specifically, God's ethical code is found in the moral absolutes of his law. Now, the term law or Torah, in its broadest sense, means instruction. Thus, God's law is an instruction manual on how to be holy or how to make ethical life choices. And allowing scripture to form and dictate our ethics enables us to display moral excellence. Sadly, many believers do not know how to respond biblically to ethical issues. To merely say, well, the Bible says so, or the Bible says it's wrong, is not a sufficient answer. And the lack of a sufficient answer demonstrates either a degree of biblical illiteracy or a lack of desire to study God's word. Consider the words of 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Scripture is profitable, that is beneficial and advantageous to us. And it's beneficial to us because it makes us adequate, that is capable and proficient. The teaching or instruction of Scripture equips us with the means to provide reproof, that is rebuking wrong beliefs or behaviors, correction, restoring something to its correct position, and training in godly conduct. And by using the precepts and principles outlined in Scripture, we can determine an ethical course of action for any situation. Are you growing in the knowledge of Scripture? Third, we must add self-control to our knowledge. Self-control means to have mastery or control over one's egocentric sinful desires. Paul used this term to describe the strict training of an athlete uh, that he undertakes to win a competition, 1 Corinthians 9.25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. 
See, by definition, self-control involves denying oneself of certain pleasures. 1 Corinthians 6.12 All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. For an example, an athlete forgoes ice cream, cookies, and cake to stay in shape. And while those goodies are not evil in general, they will prohibit an athlete from competing at the top of their game. Similarly, believer, we must remove anything, even those things seemingly good, that are going to prohibit us from growing in the knowledge of Scripture. So what's prohibiting you from growing in Scripture? What's prohibiting you from learning? Fine, listen, it may be a good thing, but if it's hindering you, you need to get rid of it. Self-control also involves disciplining oneself. 1 Corinthians 9.27 I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. See, an athlete disciplines himself or herself by exercising even when they don't feel like it. And spiritual exercise involves delving into God's word. Joshua 1.8 This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Meditating comes from the Hebrew term Hagah, which means to reflect deeply on something. In other words, meditating on Scripture means to fill your mind with Scripture and ruminate upon it. Meditation involves taking notes, following up on cross-references, looking up unknown terms, and applying what is learned to one's life. How's your meditating on Scripture going? That's the discipline we need in our lives. Again, this is supposed to be the mark of believers. These are the things we're supposed to be adding to our doctrinal foundation as we grow. Fourth, we must add perseverance to our self-control. Perseverance is the endurance to withstand hardships and stress. Joseph Thayer defines perseverance as the characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. Let's remember, friend, Peter's writing to scattered and suffering believers. These believers in particular were slandered for their morality and refusal to engage in moral perversion. And as such, the temptation to accept false teaching was great, particularly when these false teachers did not embrace a biblical morality. And whereas self-control involves the internal attitude of believers, perseverance involves the external attitude. Believer, are you persevering? Or are you deliberate in your purpose that, hey, listen, even though, the, even though I'm struggling, I'm not going to give in to this temptation. I'm going to stand firm. Now again, how did Christ defeat temptation? With the word of God. Fifth, we must add godliness to our perseverance. Godliness comes from two terms, good and worship. By understanding the root terms, it informs us that godliness involves respect and reverence towards God. It is living daily in a manner that pleases God. Now, in verse 3, Peter revealed that Christ has granted to us everything we need to be godly. And yet, here Peter exhorts us to pursue it. In 2 Peter 3.11, Peter urges us to exhibit godliness because of coming judgment. 
See, we will exhibit godliness when we are conscious of God's presence in every situation. Are you that conscious? Are you aware of God's presence in every situation? See, when you come to a situation to be tempted, and you, you, in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, wait a minute, God's watching, or God's here, God's listening, it ought to make you think twice. Number six, we must add brotherly kindness to our godliness. See, at the moment of our spiritual birth, we became brothers and sisters as part of God's family. And brotherly kindness, Philadelphia, refers to acts of affections towards one another. It involves being devoted to one another. Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, Philadelphia. Give preference to one another in honor. This devotion or affection we're to have for one another isn't based on attractiveness. It's not based on agreeableness. It's being accepting of all whom Christ accepts as his own. Romans 15, 7. Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Brotherly kindness also displays genuine gratitude and respect for others by putting them first. Philippians 2, 3-4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Again, believer, do you have brotherly kindness? How do you react to your brother and sister in Christ? Well, I don't, I don't like them. I'm not, I don't agree with them. Wait a minute. Are they your brother and sister in Christ? If yes, regardless of whether you're attracted to them or agree with them, the fact of the matter is you need to display genuine gratitude and respect for them. You need to accept them. And you need to be devoted to them. Finally, we must add love to our brotherly kindness. That's that agape love. That's sacrificially seeking the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. In other words, it's a love that practically gives without getting bent out of shape when it does not receive a thank you in response. See, agape is choosing to do good even towards the unlikable and unlovable. That's the kind of love we're supposed to be adding to our growth. And 1 Corinthians 13 provides us a snapshot of what agape love looks like. It says, it is patient. That is, it doesn't retaliate when wrong. It's kind. It responds generously to others' needs. It's not jealous. It's not envious of what another has. It does not brag. In other words, it doesn't exhibit self-importance. It's not arrogant, not proud or self-conceited. does not act unbecomingly. It behaves according to the standards of morality. It doesn't seek its own. It's not self-serving but selfless. It's not provoked. In other words, it's not touchy, irritable, sensitive to slights. It doesn't take into account a wrong. doesn't keep a record. doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. doesn't take pleasure in another's faults. Rejoices with truth. Take pleasures in what is true. Bears all things. That is, it endures difficulties on behalf of someone else. Believes all things. Willing to think the best of others. Hopes all things. Expects the best from others. Endures all things. Withstands all circumstances with courage. And never fails. It does not come to an end. See, agape love accepts alls without agreeing with all. You understand? We have to accept everybody. I don't have to agree with everybody. I don't have to agree with what they're doing. But as a person created in the image and likeness of God, I have to accept them. And I have to show love to them. 
And it's by this type of sacrificial love that the world will recognize that we're believers. John 13, 35. By this love, all will know that you are my disciples. So, when we consider growing in godliness, we first here see the process. We need to be adding these seven virtues to our lives. Again, not just these seven, but these seven to start. Now, why? What's the purpose? Well, the purpose for growing in godliness begins in verse 8, verse 8 through 11. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. See, developing these virtues does not occur overnight. It takes duration, determination, and discipline over the long haul. However, the purpose for growing will motivate us to persevere. Notice Peter says these qualities. That refers back to the chain of seven virtues. They are to be yours. Notice the verb are there. They are yours. That means to exist in an enduring or persistent condition. The verb are increasing means to grow in abundance. And Peter's point is that these virtues are to be constant and growing in abundance in your life. And if these virtues are constant and growing in your life, then you will neither be useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word useless there, argos, means to be ineffective, idle, insincere, or false. You will not be false. Unfruitful, a karpos, refers to not producing the desired results. The true knowledge of Jesus Christ refers to understanding Jesus as revealed in the gospel and the scripture so clearly and distinctly that that knowledge informs and influences our life. And those who possess that knowledge are genuinely saved. And the existence of these seven virtues in your life is evidence of salvation. Those who profess to be believers but are not producing the desired results i.e. these seven virtues, are insincere and ultimately false. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. Peter doubles down on the insincerity or falsehood of these professing believers. He states that he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. The term blind, tuflas, denotes someone unable or unwilling to understand anything. Short-sighted, marazazo, refers to squinting or closing one's eyes. By using these two terms, Peter underscores the idea that these individuals have chosen to close their eyes to true knowledge and are unwilling to understand it. Not only are they unwilling to understand the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they have forgotten their purification from their former sins. The term forgotten, lethe, refers to an unawareness caused by neglectfulness. 
Now that Greek term lethe, translated as forgotten, is the term from which lethargy is derived. And perhaps the lethargy infecting the modern church can be traced to this very issue. Now the term purification, katharismos, is a priestly term for ceremonial cleansing from defilement and was associated with the practice of baptism. John 3.25, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification or baptism. As such, the waters of baptism are symbolic of the washing away of sins. Additionally, the forgiveness of sins and baptism were almost synonymous in the early church because all believers were baptized almost immediately upon their conversion. Acts 22.16 Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized. Wash away your sins calling on his name. Thus, the purification from their former sins refers to baptism. In other words, believers, we ought to look back at our baptism and be reminded of our purification from sin through the salvific work of Christ. Neglecting the significance of their baptism, these so-called believers behave like the unregenerate. Now let's be clear, Peter's not referring to believers who lapse into sin. He's referring to those who claim to be believers and have even been baptized but demonstrate no Christ-like virtues and habitually live immorally. And those who live like the ungodly show no evidence of ever being truly born again. In verse 10, Peter exhorts his readers as his brethren. The use of this term denotes two things. First, it denotes Peter's pastoral heart and concern for their welfare. Second, it makes a distinction between those who pose as believers in verse 9 with those who are genuine. Because there are many who feign Christianity, Peter exhorts believers to be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Now that phrase, all the more, melon, means on the contrary. The verb be diligent, spadazo, is to undertake a task with excitement, eagerness, and earnestness. The verb make, poieo, refers to working at something. The term certain is to prove or verify something is real. And his calling and choosing denotes Christ called a sinner to repent and his subsequent work of selecting the repentant to be partakers of the divine nature, as we saw back in 2 Peter 1.3. Hence, Contrary to those who forget their salvation, we are to work with excitement, eagerness, and earnestness to prove or verify our salvation to be real. Is that what you're doing, believer? Are you excited, eager, and earnest to verify your salvation? The phrase, practice these things, provides the means of verifying one's salvation. The word practice Poyeo means to make, as it's translated earlier in verse 10, means to work at something. These things, again, refers back to the seven virtues outlined in verse 5 through 7. Therefore, we're to verify our salvation by habitually practicing moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Peter goes a step further. Not only does practicing these virtues give us assurance of salvation, but they will keep us from stumbling 
or falling into sin. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Now contextually, the particular sin which Peter is referencing is apostasy or falling away from God. Those who apostatize will be committed to eternal damnation. Being kept from apostasy, we are then assured of our entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now the term entrance refers to a reception or greeting given upon one's arrival. In the first century A.D. Greco-Roman culture, this term depicts the welcome that a victorious athlete receives when he returns home to his, to his home city after competing in the Olympic Games. This reception or greeting is going to be abundantly supplied. The word abundantly there describes something as rich or opulent. The verb supplied denotes the idea of adding more to something. In other words, we are going to receive an opulent reception into Christ's kingdom that is beyond resemblance to any reception in this life. And this reception is just one of the many blessings or rewards awaiting us. Notice as well that Peter refers to Christ's kingdom as eternal or without end. Now the eternal kingdom is an allusion to Daniel 7.27. Daniel says, Then the sovereignty... The dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Daniel's prophecy predicts the establishment of Christ's kingdom at the end of the tribulation when he returns and destroys the nations of this world. The angel prophesied to Mary that Christ would fulfill this prophecy in Luke one thirty one. His kingdom will have no end. John reveals the fulfillment of this prophecy in Revelation 11.5. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and his reign will be forever and ever. Finally, it would behoove us to consider the importance of the phrase, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The phrase conforms to the Granville Sharp Rule, which states that when two or more nouns are joined by and, the first having the definite article and the others not having it, they all refer to the same subject. In this case, Lord, in the Greek, is joined by the definite article tain, whereas Savior has no definite article. Acknowledging this rule is crucial because it equates Savior with Lord, making them descriptive to Jesus Christ. As previously studied, Lord, Kyrios, is the Greek equivalent for God's name, Yahweh, and Savior is an Old Testament title for God or Elohim. Hence, Jesus is Yahweh Elohim which translates as, the one who exists is the mighty, great, and exalted Sovereign One. As well, Peter's use of the title, Our Lord and Savior, was a deliberate affront against the religion of the day, the Pontifex Maximus, the divine worship of Caesar. Caesar demanded that he be worshipped as divine and, and was to be referred to as both Savior and Lord. Peter wanted us to know that there is only one Lord and Savior, and that is Jesus Christ. You know, so often, my friends, we struggle with, their, with our assurance of salvation. However, as Peter reveals, there's no need to struggle. Authentic saving faith produces virtues or fruits that guarantee salvation's genuineness. Matthew seven sixteen to 23, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears ba bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
so then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Christ made it plain and simple. The fruits or virtues that one evidences in their life will determine whether or not they are genuine or not. Preaching, casting out demons, and performing miracles does not guarantee the reality of one's profession of faith. Anyone can serve and go through the motions. But those who consistently grow in these virtues have assurance that they are indeed genuine believers. So if you've got these virtues, be assured. This is what James had in mind when he said, Faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And faith without works is useless, James 2, 16 and 20. Interestingly, the term useless, argos, meaning ineffective, idle, insincere, or false, is the same term Peter used to describe those who lack these virtues. Now, Peter and Paul provide several lists of virtues or fruits that must be evident in the life of believers, and I'd like to go over them briefly. Galatians 5, 21 to 22. Love, sacrificially seeking the highest good of another. Joy, happiness based on divine promises. Peace, inner calm that comes from confidence in Christ. Patience, the ability to endure painful situations. Kindness, tender concern for others. Goodness, moral goodness or character. Faithfulness, loyalty and trustworthiness. Gentleness, humble response to others. Self-control, restraint of passions and desires. Ephesians 4, 2-3. Humility, uplifting others above oneself. Gentleness, humble response to others. Patience, the ability to inquire, to endure painful situations. Tolerance, lovingly making allowances for faults, failures, or differing personalities. Persevering, or excuse me, preserving unity, making every effort to resolve conflict. Romans 5, 3-5, perseverance, endurance to withstand hardship and stress. Proven character, reliability and dependability. Hope, eager, confident expectations centered on God. Love, sacrificially seeking the highest good of another. 1 Timothy 6.11, righteousness, adherence to God's moral laws. Godliness, respect and reverence for God in daily living. Faithfulness, loyalty and trustworthiness. Love, sacrificially seeking the highest good of another. Perseverance, endurance to withstand hardships and stress. And gentleness, humble response to others. And uh, James 3.17-18, 3, pure, morally upright, peaceable, promoting well-being and happiness, gentle, humble response to others, reasonable, adaptable to changing situations, merciful, compassion to offenders, good fruits, moral goodness or character, unwavering, not causing divisions, and unhypocritical, sincere and genuine. Friends, consider this. Are you growing in godliness? Are these virtues evident in your life? And are you growing in them? What kind of effort are you putting into your growing? Do you have a growth plan? There is no growth in godliness if you are not determined to grow or put deliberate work into growing. And anyone who thinks that they can live carelessly and still be a believer is wrong. Let me close with a verse. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Let's pray. Gracious Father, I thank you, Lord, 
because not only have you provided us with everything we need to be godly, but Lord, you've left us with the means to test our godliness and to test whether or not we're growing. And so, Father, I would pray for all of us, Lord, that as we examine ourselves, that first and foremost, we see these virtues. And that, Lord, as we're testing ourselves, we see areas where we're not growing, that we would address those areas. That, Lord, if we see areas where we're lacking, that we would address those as well. And that, Father, we can look at our lives and see marked improvement, marked growth in all of these various areas, in all of these virtues, these fruits. And so, Father, I pray for each one, Father, that they would be not only testing themselves, but getting a plan together, working at with eagerness, with earnestness, with excitement to grow in these things. Because, Father, not only does it give, it assurance, give us assurance that we're genuine, but, Father, because of it, you're going to, in measure to our growth, you're going to supply us with an abundant reception when we enter into your kingdom. And Father, we look with great anticipation to that day. And so I thank you, Father, for giving us these tests. You don't leave us to wander in the dark and wonder, am I truly saved? Say, no, Lord, you say to us, here's what salvation looks like. Now we have to say, is this evident in my life? So Father, thank you. And help us to go on to Christ-likeness. We pray in your Son's precious name. Amen.